Today we're going to go through oaths and lawful oaths and vows. Let me say a quick prayer for us before we get started. Father God, we praise you for allowing us to come to church on Sunday and worship you. We praise you for the Sunday school hour that we have. We praise you for the divines who gave us better understanding of the truths with which you gave us. We praise you most importantly for your son Jesus who covers our sins. We ask that you would please fill our hearts and minds with wisdom, courage, and the Holy Spirit today as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, in preparation for this, I want everyone to know that I consulted three different commentaries. So if you want to borrow them, I have them. We have Chad Van Dixhorn's commentary, R.C. Sproul's commentary, and then A.A. Hodge's commentary. So we've got kind of a breadth of time that is built in there, which is pretty cool, um, into that. I also consulted some current PCA teaching elders when we get to some of our points of application to make sure that we understand how these things apply and how we work through the, these each and every day. When I first got this topic, I was a little... I was a little sitting back going, what am I really going to talk about today? Because, you know, this is not something you would expect to have in a, in a book of doctrine and theology. However, if you think about this, this is something that we deal with literally every day in all spheres of our life, starting in our homes and then emanating out. So it's really understand, important to understand this. So let me start by, by reading to you James 5:12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here James is talking about swearing, meaning the solemn taking of oaths and vows, in addition to the way we think of swearing. When I hear swearing, I'm thinking of curse words, yelling at people, that type of thing. But here what we're talking about is different. We're talking about swearing on the name of the Lord. So James is passage here is reinforced by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, saying, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. God is our benchmark for truth. He's honest, promise-keeping God, and is right to formally commit to the living God. Our hope for redemption rests in our confidence that he will keep his promises. We must believe his word and live on the basis of our trust that what he declares is truth. So what we'll do is we'll review the confession, we'll answer some questions, and then look at some brief applications of this. There are seven parts to the confession here. So what we're going to do is we're going to break them into the first four and then the last three. Some of the questions that we're going to answer are, what is a lawful oath? What is implied in it, and how is this application generally expressed? In whose name must every lawful oath be taken? And why is it sinful to swear in any other name? Who may and who may not consistently swear by the true God? And in what manner and with what forms is it right to swear? From what does the obligation to keep the oath arise? What is a vow and how does it differ from an oath? 
Upon what principle does the obligation of a vow rest, and how do they play out in everyday life? I'd also comment that it's more fun for me if people ask questions as we go along, and I'm all in favor of dialogue, so you're welcome to do so. All right, so as we will, as we will need to make sure that we are justified and fully, fully persuaded of any assertion when we call on God as witness, let us go through and look at this. So we're going to start with number one here. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. We're going to read through the first four, then we're going to go through expositionally and talk about them, and then we'll go back to the next three. All right, so that's number one. Number two. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old, so a lawful oath, being opposed by lawful authority in such matters, ought to be taken." I hope you're starting to see some of the key words here that are popping through of, of why these things are important. Number three, whosoever taketh an oath ought to duly consider the weightiness of so solemn an act and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may man bind himself by oath or to anything but what is good and just and what he believeth so to be and what he is able and resolved to perform. And fourth, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. All right, so these sections embrace the following points. First, the nature of a lawful oath. Secondly, by whose name men ought to swear. Third, the warrantableness of taking an oath. Fourthly, the manner in which an oath ought to be taken. And fifthly, the binding obligation of an oath. First, an oath is a solemn act of religious worship in which the person swearing calls God to witness his sincerity in what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. When a person swears to facts, past or present, this is called an assertory oath. When one swears that he will perform a certain deed or deeds in time to come, this is called a promissory oath. An oath may relate to matters both civilly or ecclesiastically, and according to its matter may be denominated a civil or ecclesial oath. But... To whatsoever matter it may be applied, the oath itself retains its high place among the Solomites of religion. So, the first point here, the nature of a lawful oath, is that the oath is that you're making, God is witnessing. Right? You're making the oath, God is witnessing the oath. We will look at this in a minute from the vow perspective. A good example of an oath 
We take membership vows, right? We come to church, we want to be members, we go to the membership class, we stand up in front of church, we profess our faith to the congregation, we take an oath to the church and witness it, and it's our oath as being witnessed not only by the people there, but also by God in worship service. So, real simple, this is the end, but we're going to go. All right, so the oath is witnessed by God. The vow is your promise to God. Okay? That's the big distinction, is that the, the vow is something you're promising to God. Right? You're saying, God, I promise this. And then your oath is you're making an oath, and he's witnessing that oath. Right. And a vow may or may not be true. We're going to get into why that, that comes up later. Because the vow is dependent on ourselves and depending on the type of vow we're making. Yes, sir? All right. Anybody else? All right. So as Christians, an oath is only to be taken in the name of God. So when we take oaths, it's, it's founded, it's rooted in who God is, because God is a promise-keeping God. So we are expressly commanded to swear by his name. This is the opposite of what we think. And to swear by them that there are no gods is represented as criminal. Excuse me, swear by them that are not gods is represented as criminal. Swearing by the name of God implies a belief and acknowledgement of his omniscience, omnipotence, and justice. It follows, therefore, that to swear by any other besides him is unlawful and no less than possible idolatry. Okay? So the oath is to be taken in the name of God. Exactly. That's literally some of the examples I have in here. Yes. Mrs. Miller brings up a really good point. We'll go up and we'll move ahead a little bit. So think about this. How often do we swear on something other than our Lord and Savior? And why do we do it? It's part of the vernacular of the world and the language that we live in. But that's a sinful act. We need to repent of that. That's not something we should be doing on a consistent basis. And if we are, we need to really think about it. That's how serious this is. Any other questions, comments? All right. Thirdly, an oath may be justifiably taken on weighty occasions when imposed by lawful authority. An oath for confirmation is justified by the third precept of the moral law. For while that precept prohibits the taking of God's name in vain, in sanctions swearing by the name of God on lawful occasions, as we talked about earlier, membership, um, oaths, and vows. The practice is confirmed by numerous proved examples under the Old Testament. Abraham swore to Abimelech that he would not deal falsely with him in Genesis 21. A king of the same name desired that an oath might be between Isaac and him, and they swore one to another in Genesis 26. In like manner, Jacob swore to Laban, and Joseph swore to his father. We have various examples of holy men swearing by the name of God. Thus, Jonathan required David to swear unto him, and David also swore unto Saul. The taking of an oath being no part of the judicial or ceremonial law there's much in the New Testament to confirm this practice. The Apostle Paul frequently appeals to God in these similar expressions, God is my witness, or I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. 
and then that's in Romans 1 and Romans 9. He also says, I call God for a record upon my soul. Christ himself answered the question of the high priest when he adjured him by the living God, which was the common form of administering an oath among the Jews. The writer to Hebrews speaks of the oath which God swore to Abraham, who, because he could swear by no greater, aware by himself, and he adds, an oath for confirmation is an end of all strife, plainly showing that he sanctioned the practice. It must be evident, therefore, that our Savior's words in Matthew 34 swear not at all, and the similar words of the Apostle James do not absolutely prohibit all swearing on necessary and solemn occasions, but only forbid the practice of swearing in common conversation and particularly of swearing by creatures. It must be remarked, however, that an appeal to God in trivial matters and the frequent and unnecessary repetition of the same oath is taking the name of God in vain. This is Deborah's example that we just talked about. All right. A person may not bind himself by an oath to anything except what is good and just and what he is able and resolved to perform. So we can't swear an oath that um, we are unable to, to deliver on, so to speak. Does that make sense? What would a good example of that be? Then, anybody have an example of what that would look like? Yes. Well, that's my example here. If someone promises to do something and realize if he does what, what he prom. Yes, ma'am. Yes. That's right. And that's the example that I have here. Thank you both very much. That was perfect. So that's an oath and a vow, and right. Okay, the way that I understand it when I went through this was contracts are more along the lines of a vow because it's an, we are vowing to finish something. Would you disagree? Right. Right. That's right. So they are hand in hand, but the vow is the actual fulfillment. And that's where, we'll, we'll, as we'll see in a, in a, in a little bit, that's where um, the execution part comes in on that. Uh, because we have professed faith in Christ, and therefore we have to fulfill what we say we're going to do. Or as Rick said, now um, yeah, there's mud on everybody, so to speak. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So people who swear on the Bible who don't believe in Christ... Are, they're blaspheming, they're, they're being heretics. What other point are you looking for? Unless you did that incorrectly, you wouldn't be responsible for any of that. The people who are doing that incorrectly will be judged accordingly. Yeah. That's right. Well, and interestingly enough, in all the cancel culture stuff that's going on in the world, have they taken that away from the court system? Nope. Have they taken that away from government officials being sworn in? All right. So, well, that I'm going to get to that one. So just, just the other day, I don't know if anyone saw this, somebody, um, and I forgot where it was, but they were sworn in. Is it in Fairfax? They were sworn in, was it the school board or something like that? And they had a, um, a bunch of books about 
homosexuality and other stuff that they swore on to become part of the school board. Of which, so then we could argue, and to the other point, okay, they didn't use the Bible. I bet that's what they're supposed to use. Therefore, since they didn't use that, that person's not officially sworn in, right? We, would, we could have that argument. But that's where the world's going, right? That's why these things are so important to us. Because when we witness to these things and show people that we mean what we're talking about, we have an opportunity to get them to understand where their error is. All right, so also to Anne's point, an oath ought to be taken in truth, in righteousness, and in judgment. In truth, that is, with an entire correspondence between the thoughts of the mind and the words of the oath. So we just don't jump into something and say, yes, I'm going to do this. I said, yes, be yes, no, be no. I won't get into a philosophy of life that I have on that, but you know, if, if you go through and everything's no until it's a yes, that makes you, know, you have a little time to discern things as opposed to just having yes be your default, then that's a good way to, to, to go through some of these things. In righteousness, that is, in things lawful and possible for us at the time of swearing, and with a fixed intention to perform what we pledge ourselves to do. So we need to make sure that we're going to follow through on what we're going to do. In judgment, that is, deliberately and reverently, while considering whether the matter of the oath be good and just, and whether the ends proposed by sufficient proposed be sufficient, excuse me, to justify us in the interposing the glorious and dreadful name of God for a pledge of the truth of our declarations. A lawful oath binds to performance. Oaths engaging persons to what is sinful are in themselves null and void. Right? And those who have rashly taken such oaths ought to repent of and renounce them instead of adding the sin of keeping to the sin of making them as Herod most wickedly did in beheading John the Baptist for the sake of his oath in Mark 6, 23 and 26. It says, And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. A lawful oath is binding, though the performance may be prejudicial to a man's temporal interests, and it is the character of a good man that though he swears to his own hurt, he changes not. So that is a very important part of that. We follow through on our oaths. They're not to be taken lightly. They're to be serious. Any more questions on oaths before we move to vows or comments? Please. Well, we serve God first, right? Well, yeah, that's right. No, we're, I'm, I'm, we've, we've, we've got a consequences section. Yeah. No, we don't sacrifice. That's right. No, it is, it is unlawful to sacrifice your children. That's right. Even though they're all driving you crazy this time of year. This is why an oath is to be taken in truth, in righteousness, and in judgment. So we have to have all three of these things as we go through and we think about what are we making an oath to so we don't make rash decisions and we don't want to uh, kill our children. Right. Yes, sir. Go ahead. That's right. Well, so we're going to get to consequences of all this coming up here in a second. So there are multiple commandments that are broken in all of this, um, which are important to understand. And then there's um, a couple, three or four, five applications, including that one. All right, number five, 
Chapter 22, number 5 is, A vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath, and all to be made with the like religious care, and to be performed with the like faithfulness. So that one's that. Number 6, It is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, and that it may be accepted. It is to be made voluntarily, out of faith and conscience of duty, in way of thankfulness for mercy received, or for obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. The seventh one, and then we're going to get into exposition here. So this goes to Mr. Ivy's point here. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power and for the performance of which he hath no promise or ability from God in which respects monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. you got to love the divines and the stick it to the Pope, right? <laughs> All right. So, exposition of this. These sections relate to the nature, the matter, and the obligation of a vow. A vow is a solemn promise made to God. It may be either personal or social, although a vow is of the like nature with a promissory note, yet they admit of being distinguished. In an oath, man is generally the party, and God is invoked as his witness. In a vow, God is both the party and the witness. Thank you for being patient we got there that's our big distinction i want to make sure i'm gonna read that one more time at least in an oath man is generally the party and god is invoked as the witness and that's similar to a blessing as well pastor bullock and i were talking about this a little bit when we receive blessings right we're asking god to deliver on the promises that he makes to us and so that's a form of of acknowledging an oath with god in a vow god is both the party and the witness a vow is to be made to God alone, and therefore to make vows to saints departed is superstitious and idolatrous. Vows ought to be entered into voluntarily and in the exercise of faith or independence upon the grace of Christ for enabling us to perform them. People may bind themselves by vow either to necessary duties or to other things. Well, let me hold on. So marriage, right? Let's talk about marriage for a really quick second. Marriage has become, not in our circles, but in the world, is become something that's kind of a thing we do. There's a song by Bruno Mars talking about this. The, <laughs> the high schoolers picked up their ears. He's talking about, let's go out and have a party, and then we're going to go get married, right? That's how flippant marriage has become in society. But in marriage, there's two things happening, both oaths and vows. This is important to understand. So we're calling on God with our vows to be the center of our relationship, and then we're giving oaths to our spouse in the witness of God. So both things are happening here in marriage, oaths and vows. All right. People may bind themselves by vow, either to necessary duties or to other things not expressly required, so far and long as they may lie conducive to the better performance of these duties. But no man may vow to do anything which is either unlawful or which is not in his power 
and for the performance of which he has no promise of ability from God. Okay? A vow has an intrinsic obligation distinct from the obligation of the law of God. In the law, God binds us by his authoritative command. In a vow, we bind ourselves by our own voluntary engagement. To represent a vow is laying no new or superadded obligation on the conscience or to maintain, as some writers have, that a vow does not bind us in moral duties commanded by the law of God, because our vow cannot add any obligation to his law. It is equally contrary to Scripture and to the common sense of mankind. The law of God is the primary obligation, but a vow also obliges, that is the secondary obligation, and subordinate things oppose not each other. The performance of vow is frequently and strictly enjoined in the word of God. As Deuteronomy 23 says, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, says Moses, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. There's a lot of other references I can give should you want to know them. All right, so vows. Anybody have any questions about that? Comments? Yes, sir. Yes. All right, so we have a section here, Popish Roman Fallacies. That's how everyone referred to them. So I will too. All right, so the vow of celibacy as being sinful in that God gives, or Jesus specifically gives us an answer for that. The answer to celibacy, or that really it's the, it's the sin of lust is what they're trying to mitigate. And in this instance, Jesus gives us marriage. So we have marriage as the antidote, as the answer to the sin of lust. We don't have to be celibate in order to satisfy that sin. So that's where the divines come down on that. The majority are not called to the life. So I would, I would say the majority are not necessarily called to the life of singleness, even though that's become a little bit celebrated today. And so therefore, you go back and say, okay, what, at the root cause, why would they have these things set up? What is the sin they're trying to mitigate here? And the sin that they talk about in all the three commentaries I read about this, and, and I agree with it when I read it, was they're trying to um, mitigate the sin of lust. And the answer to lust is marriage. And Rick, what else do you have? That's right. Well, yeah, and the, and the, and the other part is that in making that vow, you're superseding the law of God. And when you super, it, and we just went through that part, right? You can't supersede the law of God with your vow. It's going to be secondary. Live, live singly and enjoy the, your life, but don't make the vow is the answer that they would give you because therefore you, you don't have the obligation before God to do that and, and whatever may come, may come. There's a couple pieces here. Vows of poverty. Some religious orders vow to poverty and begging to get by. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4.28, all hard work so that Christians will be able to help those who are truly in need. One of the best pieces of information I ever received from any sermon I ever listened to was this pastor from New York. We won't hold that against him. But what he said was, um, do all you do to the glory of God. So if you take a vow of poverty, how are you glorifying God? So then you can go, but I can glorify God in sweeping the floors. I can glorify God in my work. I can glorify God in how I 
love my wife and how I do this and do that. So that, Paul, with Paul's talking about hard work, you remember Paul was making tents, right? Paul wasn't sitting around doing nothing. So this is built into that piece of it. We need to be doing things that God honors that he will fulfill for us. That's what, that's what people do when they take a vow of poverty is they beg and ask for charity of others. No, so you, no. What he, what he's saying there is, you have a love of money. You need to lose your love of money and love me. And so, in order to make him lose his love of money, he said, "Sell what you idolize." Idolatry becomes part of this too. Let's not lose our way here. If we're taking vows of celibacy and poverty and vows of denial, those become idols for us. That makes us sinful. That takes us away. That's what that story is about. All, yes, ma'am. No, that's a false dichotomy. That's scarcity men, mentality, right? So we have scarcity theology. There's, a, there's abundance theology. They, in, in a lot of black churches, when they hire pastors, they go buy them a Lexus or Mercedes or a BMW, and then they go buy them a bunch of fancy clothes because their parishioners are, are, are wearing those things and driving those cars. And they're like, we want you to have credibility with these people. So that's the other side of that. Again, but come back to your, the, 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 root, the love of money is the root of the evil here. Let's not idolize the things that are not of God. So that's the key. All right. So we're going to go through some thoughts and observations and some, con- well, let me go to consequences first. Some consequences of failing to take these things seriously. First, foremost, let's not kid ourselves. Spirituality is tied to the law of God. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says, It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So, there's the breaking of the second commandment in this. In swearing by any other God and and, and the sin of idolatry, if we swear by any place or anything, just like we talked about, and this goes back to an atheist or infidel swearing on the Bible when they shouldn't. So there is the breaking of the second commandment. There's also the breaking of the third commandment. We violate the third commandment when we take up the name of God in service of what is false, what is frivolous, and what is phony. So I think the vows got to part of that. You could argue back into the third commandment and say some of these vows, they sound wise and they sound great, but are they really? Wisdom of whom? Not of God. It also presents us with a misrepresented witness our propensity to lie, as described in Romans 3, 4. We have a propensity to that. That's how we're made. We have original sin. We are going to lie. All right, so let me come back to some important thoughts and obligations. We must not entangle ourselves with unwise vows. Remember, we are restricted in our abilities to keep our vows. Do not vow something that you cannot deliver on, ever. We are also called to trustworthiness. A.A. Hodge said, Vows had better be restricted to the voluntary assumption and promise to observe with the help of divine grace duties imposed by God and plainly revealed in the scriptures. I think the key part of that is the duties of God and plainly revealed in scriptures. There's also a piece here that I, that I went down when I started talking with a few people about this is, you know, oaths and vows produce covenanting, right? And we're a covenanting people. We're covenanting with God. We're covenanting with each other. So covenanting is a means of, of sanctification. And when we formally commit to something, it pushes us to a place where we need to finish and have accountability for that. 
So that's the other part of the oaths and vows is having accountability to the things that we promise either to each other or to God and within the name of God. Does anybody have any other questions or comments? I have a few more points I'm going to go through. All right. So other things to consider, the power and potency of our membership vows. There are blessings and curses there. We need to keep our vows not only to our church, but also to our spouses. And not keeping our vows brings chastisement and God's wrath. And that's what we deserve for not following through on our vows. Do not bind yourself to something that is against God. If you say you're going to do something good, do it. Fulfill the duty that you've put forth. A pastoral point that someone shared with me in marriages, for those of us who are married, a lot of marriages, when there's issues going on, there's stupid vows that are made, as the person told me, uh, to get someone out of the doghouse, as it were. So the vows made to calm or placate the other person. But that's not a biblical vow. That's trouble. That's going to lead to distrust, and God's not going to honor that vow. So it's important to understand that. Another point to consider as well is the weird vows that people use to turn from sins. So if we have a sin issue, don't make a vow to God that you're not going to do the sin issue anymore. Repent from it and turn. Repentance is the key, not the vow. So calling on God in, the name, in his name for repentance and help is way more powerful than turning and saying, I vow to never do these things again. Because that, that gets you into trouble because most, if it's a sin issue and it's a particular sin, you're probably going to keep doing it to a certain point. Without God's help and the Holy Spirit, you're not going to change and turn from that. Oaths of officers. I don't know how many of, of y'all think about the oaths that the officers here at the church have taken to, and that they have to uphold. And then also outside the church, in the public sphere, the magistrate. Every officer in the church needs to uphold the, not only the, the book of church order, but also the confessions and the teaching of the church. And that's very important. Don't take an oath unless you really want to keep it. And God has intervened catastrophically when people toyed with the oaths and the vows that they've given to God. That is not a place we want to be. I'm going to stay away from the political part of this for now. I'm going to open up for questions before I say my final couple thoughts. Is there any more questions, points? No? Nobody? Go ahead. That's a really good point, Jerry. Right, you're giving up your control. God's in control. You don't. Yeah, he saw it as unlawful. He recanted. Yeah, he, he said, this is wrong. I should, why are we doing this? This is inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah, so his point was, I don't answer to the church, I answer to God. And God is the creator of the church, and not this way. <laughs> yeah, if they're, yeah, you can't be against God's law. Well, you don't have to avoid them, right? Just, just remember who you're making the vow with. That, I think that's the key, right? Go, I'm going to go back to the definition. An, in oath, man is generally the party and God has invoked his witness. In vow, God is both the party and the witness. So, so just know who you're, this is, you know, understand who you're getting, getting together with on this thing. I would say the promise is more like an oath. Because the promise, if you promise me, God would, God would witness us in the promise. So that's why I was talking about covenanting earlier. 
Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Church membership is a covenantal relationship. We have an oath and a duty to each other in here beyond what we have to everyone else out there. So if I promise Mr. Ivy I'm going to do something for him, I better deliver. Because then I'm sinning to Mr. Ivy. That's not fair. So that's, that's where that comes into play there. It's a yes or no. Right? There's two points to that. One is, as the verse says, yes, be yes, and no, be no. But you could, you just, I have a default filter. My default filter is always no, until something's a yes. Because I don't want to go into it halfway and not perform or deliver the way that I need to. And it's not a in-your-face no, it's in my mind, let me make sure I understand this before I commit 100%, and then I'm going to be all in. There's multiple types of oaths. One is a promissory oath. And as a Christian, when you do promise or you are swearing, it is always to God as your witness. So that's always part of, that goes around with you. Well, it goes around with you, as Rick was talking about earlier. You can't not go somewhere and have that be with you. So it would be a combination of those. Any other points? All right, let me wrap up here. I've got some nice quotes that I like. So as we've seen, oaths are promises we make in God's presence. Vows are promises made to God himself. We must not entangle ourselves with unwise vows. They return us to bondage and make us forget the warning of the Apostle Paul. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Since we have been bought by a Lord whose yoke is easy and burden is light, let us not needlessly multiply our promises to him, but revel in the promises he has made to us. Righteous people are called to live by faith. To live in this manner means more than trusting God. It involves being trustworthy and faithful with respect to promises, oaths, and vows. As people of the word, our word should be our bond. Thank you all very much. I appreciate all the questions and feedback. Let me say a quick prayer for us and we'll go to church.